0: Seems like only poets can speak about it, abortion. That prose is too blunt an instrument. That prose statements will turn tender questions of life and death and fear and, soul and love into stark black and white cartoons when they can really be portrayed only with the most delicate brushes dipped in washes of pale color, colors that bleed into each other, life into life, justice into justice, freedom into freedom, death into death, Placards don't get us there. They're the bluntest of all. My body, my choice. It's a child, not a choice. Against abortion, don't have one. Choose life. Not that any of these statements are are wrong and they're deeply felt. They just, they don't seem subtle enough, nuanced enough for the depth of feeling, of experience, the complexity of the values and emotions involved. Maybe all of the most important questions, the most important decisions are like this, many of them anyway. in that they don't weigh good against evil, but one good against another. And yet, even saying that, I know I'm saying something very controversial, that there are plenty of people who insist that abortion is simply not a serious moral dilemma or a moral question at all, because there is no right more fundamental than our autonomy to decide what happens in and to our bodies. Anything that stands against that, they they say, it's just not a moral question worth entertaining. While others insist that there is no right more fundamental than life, the right to stay alive and contribute and grow. And put this way, with the... Leakness, the black and whiteness of placards. Who could disagree? <sighs> the value of life, the value of bodily autonomy. Of course, of course those are so precious. Non-negotiable, they're, they're almost the same thing. And yet here we are, because in pregnancy, they come into conflict sometimes. Many of us, most it appears from surveys, feel that. We feel tugged in different directions. Uh, The vast majority of US Americans believe that abortion should remain legal, available to all. And many, many of those people, as well as those who wish it to be illegal, believe that abortion is not always the right moral choice. Or they say, it's not something I would do. If you want to know just how complicated it is, look at the number of people who are firmly pro-choice. Who, and I am one of these people, who firmly believe that abortion should, must remain legal and yet have carried a wanted, loved child to term. In their own bodies and feel the preciousness of that. I know many other and many others in that situation are right here. And by the way, I just want to acknowledge people of different sexes, different genders are capable of carrying uh, carrying babies. Um, I know a lovely man who did exactly that. Um, so forgive just the shorthand if I speak of women um, and pregnancy for the rest of the service. <coughs> the rest of the sermon. Also, a huge percentage of people who support the right to abortion and have had abortions also have children, before or after, or both, their choice to terminate a pregnancy. And this is why we need to be able to talk about abortion because the dividing line between different policy options, legal options, doesn't just, it's not between faction and faction, it's this crooked, jagged line that runs right down each of us, between values that we hold dear and outcomes we wish were so. And. Questions of morality, questions of religion, questions of feeling, and questions of law, those aren't all the same thing. We need to talk about it in a way that acknowledges that. So, I want to circle around this poet's approach, this so important, delicate, nuanced approach to our feelings, our experiences our most deeply held values. I want to come back around to that after talking a bit about the way abortion has come slammed down on us in the past couple of weeks as a matter of law, public policy, as we look at the almost certain overturning of Roe v. Wade, which will make abortion illegal in about half the states, but I will come back around to that, um, to the poet's nuances. So when I talk about law, I mean, let's look at some questions that come up in the abortion debate, such as, when does life begin? Legal question? A religious question? Contrary to what many would have us believe, religions don't agree on an answer to this question. They don't agree with each other, and even internally they don't agree. A religion such as Christianity leads to different conclusions depending on which text you read, which sage you listen to, how you interpret things. In any case, ours is a secular system of laws. So this question does not belong in our courts on the basis of our religious convictions, but it might be helpful to hear this if you are a person who values the Bible, to note that Adam was not alive, according to the text, until he breathed, until he drew breath in the air of his, on his own But the U.S. government should not compel anyone to abide by that holy scripture or a particular interpretation of it. This is not yet a theocracy, thank God. (laughs) Of course, you could answer the question, when does life begin using a secular tool, such as science? No, you can't. You can't, science doesn't answer that question. Science can tell us lots of valuable information. Uh, When does a heartbeat begin? When do the neurons begin to spark? When can a brain operate on its own outside the protection and nurture of a womb? And of course, medical technology has radically changed the date at which somebody can live on their own in that circumstance, but Which of, if any of these, equals life? That is not a question for science to answer. That's not what science does. These are the kind of questions we wrestle with within ourselves and in conversation with people whose values we share or trust. Here's another question that seems to have dominated, strangely enough, the, um, the legal conversation at times. When do we acquire a soul? Need it be said that that is not a legal question in a secular society? It's a good question. If the, if the word soul means anything to you, which is not a given, it's a fascinating and important question. Let's rephrase it like this. This, this sounds better for the courts. What is a person? What's a person? I would argue, again, as somebody who's fervently in favor of legal abortion, I would argue that's a question that the courts, that our laws need to consider. Because it it determines who gets the protection of the laws, right? I mean, here, here are all of us, we're all persons in the eyes of the law. And that means certain things. It means we're not allowed to kill each other without good reason. I mean, you know, the state has its own reasons, right? Its own exceptions. And although it's not very good at preventing us from murdering one another, it does at least uh, attempt to step in to punish it and provide a deterrent that way. It's saying, you are a person, therefore we're not allowed to murder you. And of course, this question of when, when does that shift? When does it start? When does it end? That comes up a lot at the end of life as well when we're deciding when do we no longer have to provide maybe they don't want us to provide a person with what they need to live any longer and here it is at the beginning of life some point we become a person but when okay that's a that's a legal question, for sure. And so I want to spend a little time introducing you, if you, if you aren't aware, of this marvelous essay um, that I've linked to at the bottom of uh, your order of service, so you can read it um, read it in full later on. An essay by the moral philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson called In Defense, in Defense of Abortion. Don't read it now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I don't want to compete with her, you know, and, and her eloquence, um, and she is eloquent and powerful and funny um, in talking about this very serious matter, but I'll just give you a little pricey. Um because she says, let us just accept for the moment, just accept for the sake of argument that a fetus is a person. She does not, for the record, accept this, but she says, let me just argue based on this, and she poses a, thought experiment. She says, imagine that you wake up in the hospital, you went to bed perfectly healthy in your home, you wake up in the hospital and you are attached through through medical machinery to a man in the next bed. She's going to make this simple. Not only is uh, this clearly a person, but he's a person whose value everyone can agree upon. He is a world-renowned and talented violinist, okay? Not to suggest that violinists have more of a right to live than anybody else, but she's going to make it very simple, okay? Everybody wants this person to live, but he can't. His kidneys have failed, and a society of music lovers has determined that you are the only person they have been able to find who can, who can help him to survive. So um, they've kidnapped you, taken you to a hospital, and hooked you up. It's a thought experiment, okay? And it's a good one, because then they're asking, okay, here we have a person, he has a right to live, nobody's questioning that. He's innocent, he has done nothing wrong, he deserves to live. And she says, do you have an obligation to give him what he needs to survive? And she poses a question using the um, well-known biblical story that has found its way into our legal framework of the Good Samaritan. She says, if they tell you, you need to, um, you only need to do this for nine months, after that you can unhook from this guy and the wonderful violinist will have been saved, everybody will be very happy and you can go on your way. She says, that would be the law not only requiring you to be a good Samaritan, going out of your way to provide for somebody, for what he needs to live. It would require you to be a splendid Samaritan. (laughs) She says, let's make it even simpler. Let's say you don't need to do it for that long at all. Let's say it's an hour. They say, oh, you've just woken up. 55 more minutes and you can go. What you might call, what she might call, being a minimally decent Samaritan. (laughs) And she points out, I told you she was funny, yeah? But what's not funny is that as she points out, there is no law in any state in the union outside of this matter of abortion. Where you are required to be so much as a minimally decent Samaritan. Not talking about the moral issue. As I said, I'll come back to that, but legally no one would require that. It's enough to say, it's my body. I didn't say he could. I'll come back to consent too. I didn't say he could and I don't want to, and that's enough in the eyes of the law. I mean, if we make it an hour like that, it's kind of comparable to um, something, perhaps morally, we should all do, a minimally decent Samaritan, who is healthy and legally able to give blood would do it every eight weeks like clockwork. Most of us don't. Fairly minimal, inconvenience and discomfort, and, and you could save a life. But we don't require that. That's not what the law does. That's not, she says, that's not how the law works, and it's not how we want the law to work. That's why the legal question and the moral questions of abortion are separate. They have to be separate. Now let's introduce a complication as she does. This has been a case such as rape, right? You had no choice whatsoever. Um, As she says, you could protect yourself from rape by, you know, locking yourself in a room forever and ever. But, you know, if you are to have any kind of freedom of movement, you're taking the risk If you are a person capable of becoming pregnant, you are taking the risk that you will be raped and become pregnant. Okay. You by walking innocently in the world have been kidnapped, who could have guessed, by the Society of Music Lovers, and now your life is hitched to somebody who is innocent and deserving of life, but you didn't consent. What if you did consent? What does consent even mean? This is where it gets really complicated. This is where it's too nuanced, in my view, which is why I take the position I do. It is too nuanced for the law. She gives an example, it's the kind of example, nightmare scenario that people who are flatly opposed to abortion want us to think about, although I don't know if it's ever actually happened. She says, okay, imagine uh, somebody's fertile, they, have sex that could get them pregnant with no thought whatsoever of trying to prevent such a pregnancy. They get pregnant. Uh, she's, she's seven months pregnant and decides, I really want to go to Europe like now. Can't fly. I think I'll get an abortion so I can take my trip. Okay, right? In between that callousness for what we are granting for the sake of argument is another person. to a child desperate raped terrified pregnant which many people would say even that child has no right should have no right under the law to get an abortion between there there's a there's a vast span of these delicate colors these different shades which we'd like to engage with morally, which we need to engage with morally, if we think of it a, it's a moral dilemma at all. But what is the law to do there? I mean, what, what, what are they thinking for these things, like the, the exception in the case of rape or incest? They are already always, if incest were not rape. Incest is rape, okay? So in the case of rape, What are you going to do? You go seek an abortion and you say I was raped. Well, prove it. Well, that's not how our legal system works, right? The burden of proof is suddenly on you to prove that you were raped, which as we know is going to take months or years in our legal system. This is ridiculous. We're going to have to take the woman's word for it. In other words, no questions asked. It is between her and her conscience and whoever helps guide her through her difficult decisions to know Do I have an obligation? How good a Samaritan am I having to be here? Did I call this person, if they're a person, willy-nilly into existence and therefore I have an obligation to them? So many questions in there and they deserve our honest engagement. As I, this poet has engaged them. And gosh, it was hard to find a poem to share that didn't seem to back up one placard or another or both at the same time. Is she saying, don't have abortions, that abortion is wrong because she says, I'm still thinking 10 years later, I'm still bleeding, or is this a pro-abortion, and pro-legalization poem, because she says, this is what I had to do or I would have remained a child. Neither one, she's a poet, speaking beautifully of an experience so that we can see how complex it is. Law can't allow for that kind of complexity. It just doesn't. All we can do is say, this is how it is, this is what's available to you, please let it be abortion for those who need it. And then those who reach that conclusion, they have those conversations with those who love them, who care about their values, their, their family, their friends, their church, or other religious community, which I hope that everybody in that situation has somebody who will listen to them, hold them, not tell them what to do, but just ask them helpful, open questions. What do you need to do? And here's why I want us to engage as a religious community that has sexuality education underway today and every year, our, what we call OWL, our whole lives sexuality program. What I would want to say to everybody on the cusp of thinking about uh, any kind of sexual activity that can get you pregnant, if you're going to do that, try to think through for yourself, what does consent mean? Where do I become responsible? At what point? Is it I need to never have sex at all? That's too risky until I'm ready to have a baby? Okay, some people would say that, then abide by that. If it is uh, I need to use responsible birth control, but if it fails, I will feel I have done what I needed to do, taking care of my obligation to another person. Let us help you observe that. If it is, I don't think this is a person and I don't have any obligation to them until they're born and a child. They can decide that as well, and we'll help them. But you should know. You should try to know as best you can when it's still all a theory. That seems like something we could ask of one another and help one another to do. But it's so hard for us to have these conversations. And I'm aware of how loath I've been to have them when abortion was legal. How hard it is to admit any nuance, any feeling, when the law feels so frail. Now that it feels like it is going to be gone, I'm taking a new responsibility. Another link I put there in the order of service is an article, there's, there's any number of them, um, but I found this one very beautiful collection of, uh, in New York Magazine th- several years ago, of uh, the accounts of 26 women who, um, who have had abortions. Very, very different stories. Because I wanted to share this quote in particular from a woman identified only as Maya, and uh, 23 years old and living in Oregon. She said, when she faced a pregnancy that she did not want, the only people who would listen to me say that I had any emotions? Were people who wanted me to fall down on my knees and ask for forgiveness? You know, where were the people like me? I don't want to ask her to fall on her knees and ask for forgiveness. I want to hear about her emotions. Can we say that to each other? It's okay. It's okay to say you're heartbroken, guilty, or conflicted, and still have an abortion, or not have an abortion. It's all okay, it's complicated. No, she says, I saw a counselor at a crisis pregnancy center, you know, that's the euphemism for place where they do their best to convince you not to have an abortion, no matter what, I saw a counselor, but she gave me an icky feeling, Maya says. There's no room to talk about being unsure, this woman says. Faced with this uncertainty, such a big decision, 23, probably the biggest, hardest decision she's ever made. We need to have room to be unsure. So that is something we can do. There's so much, so much more I could talk about, about the things that we can bring to what is sure to be a long and difficult time uh, fight in our our country's history. But right now, today, I just want to talk about that gulf between what the law can do and what the poets tell us about. It's nuanced. It has many shades. People of good conscience can reach many different decisions. And people need people to talk to. People with whom to be unsure. So let us be the people who can come Be companions to each other, just to hold somebody's hand and listen and say, how is it for you, how do you imagine it will be if you do this or this or this, I'm here for you. Without judgment, without bringing it into into it, what I want you to do, what I would do or imagine I would do, what I did do, faced with a similar situation, how badly we need that. May we be such a place, such a home for a soul in uncertainty and pain.